Aloha. You are listening to a message from Shorebreak Church. If you have been blessed by this week's audio message, please join us in the mission of making disciples by partnering with us in prayer or by giving financially. Partner with us by visiting shorebreakchurch.com. Mahalo. If you would remain standing for the reading of God's Word, grab your Bibles and go to Mark. The Gospel of Mark chapter 10 is where we are in our current series through Mark's Gospel. We stand in honor and reverence to the Scriptures because we believe this is God's Word. And so, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs to the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who could be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother and f- or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, incline your ear. O Lord, and answer us. For we are poor and needy. Be gracious to us, O Lord, for it is to you and you alone we cry all the day long. 
May your steadfast love overwhelm our lives through the scriptures this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Aloha to every single one of you who are joining us for our worship gathering. We are truly humbled and thankful to have you with us. And I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, so it's some of the plans to kind of make this day happen, especially being at the second worship gathering might be tough. And uh, my team didn't make it, so I don't really care about the Super Bowl. It's okay. Plus, I don't root for cheaters, so just kidding. Just ah, I see some of you. Hashtag deflate gate. I don't know, something about that. Um, that being said, we're really thankful to have you with us today. Um, the reason we are in the scriptures, we read the scriptures, is because we believe. It's not about what I want to say. It's not about what you want to hear. It's all about what God has spoken and what God has declared. We believe that he and he alone has the words of eternal life. And that's why we study. We, we are in Mark's gospel and what we've seen so far in Mark's gospel is, is, is we've looked at what it means to see Jesus. We've also looked at what it means to believe in Jesus. And when I say see Jesus, we've learned what it means. We, we've seen that through the life of Peter, James, and John at the Mount of Transfiguration, the heavens are rendered, the clouds are pulled back. God the Father speaks about God the Son and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And it's in that glorious moment of transfiguration, they see Jesus not only as man, but they see Jesus in his glorified state as God. And it's incredible. And they behold and they see the glory of God. And then soon after that, there's another incident where they're called, where, where faith is illustrated, belief is illustrated for the disciples through, if you remember, the father whose child is demon-possessed. Where he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So do you see what's happening right now? We're, we're in Mark's gospel. We're looking at what it means to see Jesus. We've looked at what it means to believe in Jesus. But today's distinction and the uniqueness of today's message is what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And that's what we're going to spend our time talking about today is seeking to answer that question through this text. And I think that this is a helpful conversation to have because of the panorama of Christianity culturally here in Hawaii. Hawaii used to be the most Christian nation on earth. In the 19th century, there was a revival that broke out on this island through Titus Cohen and the missionaries that planted here that was so rampant, so widespread, that the upwards of 90% plus of the island was in fact Christian. We're still dealing with the ramifications and the effects of that revival today. So a lot of people, culture, they don't, now I'm not saying everyone, but a lot of people, they don't have a problem with Jesus. They might be able to say, yeah, I've seen Jesus. I, I believe in Jesus. They might be able to articulate faith in Jesus. But do they actually, many of us, do we actually follow him? 
We're cool with Jesus. We're down with Jesus. Jesus is my homeboy, but do we actually follow him? And I would say that by and large, here in the islands, our understanding of Christianity, the gospel, and Jesus, I would describe it as naive. But what does it look like, in addition to the cultural panorama and landscape of Hawaii, what does it look like to follow Jesus in a culture that lacks commitment? Yes, millennials, I am talking to you. Now, I can, I'm not throwing you under the bus. I, I am one. So millennials, for the first time population-wise, have now matched that of baby boomers. Pretty, pretty, pretty incredible. And, and that being said, that, that the, the cultural landscape because of millennials is beginning to become more mainstream. They're, they're becoming the majority. And as they do, as they become the majority, what, what's living in one place? I've have, have have revealed, rather, millennials are less committed to living in one place. Statistics published by City Labs say that 35% of millennials will move roughly uh, around the age of, of 25. Millennials are less likely to own a home than previous generations because of the financial downturn in 2006 and, and the expenses of continuously, uh, continuously rising along with inflation. Uh, millennials are putting off commitments to marriage uh, later than any other generation before until their uh, late 20s or early 30s. So if you're a millennial and you're single in here, late 20s, early 30s, don't lose heart, all right? Look around. There's some, there's a lot of, we have a lot of millennials in this church. Just, you know, just... Go say hi. Say what's up after church or whatever. I don't know. Um, Pew Research Center claims that nearly one-fourth of millennials claim no religious affiliation. That is the highest number in the history of America. Lack of commitment. And we're not picking on millennials but whether it's a naive understanding of cultural Christianity, the gospel, and the person and the work of Jesus, or simply a lack of commitment because of our upbringing or the things that we've gone through, it's helpful to have a conversation of what does it actually look like to be a committed follower of Jesus? Because to be a true disciple, to be so radically transformed by the gospel and to inherit everlasting life, it's not enough to simply see or believe in Jesus. Do you actually follow Jesus? And so Jesus is going to illustrate this for us with a life of a young rich man. But before we get there, there's almost this side story that is trying to distract us from the main story, but it's actually not doing that. It's only going to reinforce the truths that are being spoken in the main story first. Because before we get to the rich young ruler, the disciples are rebuking kids. What about the children, right? It's like they're there. These kids are running up to Jesus, and, and they're rebuking these kids. And, and you, you see that. Jesus saw it, verse 14, he was indignant or angry and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now for Jesus to, to say, truly I say to you, whoever does not uh, like a child is received like a child, the kingdom of God, they will not, we better get this right. Better understand what's actually being said here. 
See, for the disciples, kids were an inconvenience. Just, just shop with, with kids at Costco, and you realize 95% of the other shoppers who do not have kids realize kids are an inconvenience. I had a lady, like, literally take the cart because there's not even my kids, other kids were in front of me. She backed the cart into my heels because I wasn't going fast enough. And I wish to say I said a really nice thing to her, but I did not. <laughs> kids were an inconvenience for the disciples. They were getting in the way. I mean, they, I probably go, oh, wow. all the kids, all they want to do is be with Jesus. And they stink and they smell and, and sounds come from their body in areas that they shouldn't be coming from. It just is weird. I don't want to be around them. Uh, Jesus has more important things to do. And they're just too loud. Can we just... Get the kids away. And Jesus, indignant, or Jesus, angry at the disciples, says, no, let the children come to me. Which begs the question, why would kids want to be with Jesus? A lot of times we can just rush and talk about this. Why would children want to be with, with Jesus? So I asked my kids, Instead of me trying to answer that question, I simply asked my kids, why do you think Keiki would want to be with Jesus? Sebastian, who's nine, said, Jesus is a cool guy. That's why kids would want to be with him. He's awesome. He's a cool guy. He's awesome. Curran, my middle child, he said, because, I love this answer, because he was fun. Kids don't want to, like kids don't run up to people who they think are no fun. Kids run up to people who they know are fun. Alistair said, it was pretty deep, I don't know. <laughs> and I wasn't going to accept I don't know for an answer, so we pressed him a little further. And he said, oh, because he's loving. That's a good answer, buddy, Alistair. That's a really good answer. See, children wanted to be with Jesus. That's just a reality. They wanted to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Do you want to be with Jesus like a child wants to be with Jesus? Yes, it's vital and it's important to see Jesus as God and to believe Jesus rightly, but do you see him as a cool and awesome guy? Like, is Jesus fun? Is Jesus loving? Kids, listen, what's interesting about this is kids have nothing to bring to Jesus. Actually, they do. Boogers, snot, colds. Stinky smells, that's what kids, but kids have nothing to bring to Jesus, but with joy, they receive love from Jesus. And if we come to Jesus with nothing, but with joy, are willing to receive all that Christ has done for us, yours is the kingdom of God. So what, while these kids are just stoked on Jesus, they love Jesus, they want to be with Jesus, there is this young dude who also comes up to Jesus, but who will walk away from Jesus, not stoked, but sorrowful. Verse 17, he was setting out on his journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, this dialogue that is happening is so interesting between Jesus and this, this, this man. Them, them talking story reveals a lot about the condition of this man's heart. For one, we know that he was loaded, he was rich. Luke 18 reveals to us that he was a ruler. In fact, because Jesus refers to him that he may know the commands, it actually means he could potentially be a religious ruler who was young. He's maybe a millennial, right? Matthew 19. And runs up to Jesus, kneels at Jesus' feet, and asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, scratching the surface or just looking at this on the surface, all things seem to be going well. Like, how could this story be more hopeful, be more exciting, be more intriguing? But his question, though it might seem sincere on the surface, actually reveals the sickness that has arrested this young man's heart. When he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It reveals that his belief is that by doing, he can earn And doing to inherit anything is religion. Doing to receive something is religion. Doing is works-infused righteousness. That's what religion says. If I am moral, well, then God should accept me. Because I have done good things, hey, I deserve good. And if I've done good things and I deserve bad, that means God's not fair. This was the mantra of the Pharisees and the Sadducees then. It's the mantra of many religious and spiritual people even today. That we think that somehow by doing good, doing what is right, that God now owes us to our debt. But doing and inheriting should never go together, ever. And so Jesus responds to him, because he goes up to, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. Interesting response. Jesus declares, only God is good. So then what does that leave us? Not good. We are not Good, if only God is good, that means you and I, we are not good. So Jesus is showing him that he isn't good as he, think, as he thinks he is. See, life through the eyes of religion is often we think ourselves better than we actually are. When in fact, we are far more evil, far more worse, far more sinful than you and I ever will realize about ourselves. Fewer things are more dangerous than thinking we aren't as bad as we are. And we preach the false gospel to ourselves. I'm not that bad and God owes me. It's religion. 
And Jesus, revealing how he is unable to earn eternal life, says in verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from, your, from my youth. His response to Jesus shows how ignorant and thick-headed and hard-hearted he actually is in line of what Jesus said moments ago, which is what? Only God is good. Yeah, but you know, I'm perfect. I've done all these commands. Teacher, I've done these since, since my youth. Guys, no one is good except for God. Only God is good. Only God is perfect. And while this man has everything, he views himself as morally good and he still lacks one thing. So Jesus says in verse 21, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Come, follow me. He lacks one thing. Oh, so you, you've obeyed? You lack one thing. One thing, something riches cannot buy. Something your investments, your ROI, your interest cannot earn you. Something you cannot manipulate being a wealthy person in a community. Something you lack is everlasting in life. And all the riches of the world, you cannot purchase that. You cannot influence that. You cannot manipulate that. So sell everything to the poor. Come follow me. Not only is this man not good, he is evil. He refuses to see his sin because he refuses to see how bad and how blind he is. Now, let's just take this, let's just take young, young homeboy here for, at his word for a moment. Let's just take him at his word. And let's just say he didn't commit adultery. Even though Jesus refined adultery, redefined adultery, meaning... Um, if, if a man looks at a woman less after her in a heart, he commits adultery. Let's just say he's never even looked at a woman in a lustful way, which is impossible. But let's just say he, he did that. He honored his father and his mother, and he has not murdered. He has rebelled still against God's first commandment, which is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and all your mind. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What's going on here? His love was misplaced. He had misplaced love. Love misplaced in anything other than God is rebellion. It's not wrong to have riches. It's not wrong to have wealth or possessions. That's not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, in America, we are in roughly in the top 6% of the wealthiest people among the six plus billion people here on earth. So right now, you and I would be considered wealthy by everyone else in the world. And so this text better sober us up here. 
So it's not wrong if you have many possessions, but it is wrong if your possessions possess you. If what you own actually owns you. And what's interesting is this young man, he does not have the heart of a child. For him, having treasure brought him more joy than having Jesus. See, Jesus became an obstacle to his joy, to his fun, to his source of life. Jesus was not the source of joy, the source of life for him. And that's why Jesus called him. And seeing this says, get rid of everything, abandon all things, forsake everything else, and come follow me if I'm truly your source of joy. And he walked away disheartened. So do you see the polarizing responses from these paralleled stories? The children that we talked about earlier and now? Children came to Jesus with nothing, willing to receive everything freely. This man came to Jesus with everything, but would walk away with nothing. His understanding of the person of Jesus was naive because he did not rightly understand Jesus and he loved his sin. He lacked commitment to follow him because he thought he was good. See, he saw Jesus. He had some sort of belief in Jesus. He was willing as a rich man to bow down at his feet. But did he follow him? I need you to hear me on this. The call to come and follow Jesus is a call to fulfillment. That's what it is. More than about what you're letting go, it's what you're moving towards. It's a call to taste and to see that the Lord is good. It's a call for you to drink and indulge from the wells of living water. And when you drink that living water, you will never thirst again. It's a call for you who have no money to come buy and eat. Well, how can I possibly come eat and buy if I have no money? Because the bill is completely paid for. It's coming to Jesus with nothing, willing to receive everything he has freely given to you. This is what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, Jesus told them, there are innumerable treasures in heaven waiting for you, but the earthly treasures of this world gripped his heart too tightly. To make sure we get this, to make sure we handle the word of God rightly, make no mistake, to follow Jesus for this man was not selling his stuff so he could be saved. The call to come and follow Jesus is to be Christian. See, to be a Christian is to have Jesus as your supreme joy and love. And his love was misplaced. Sin is misplaced love. That's what sin is. St. Augustine, he referred to it as disordered love. Where St. Augustine talks about 
how according to God, there, there is a cadence to love. There is a cadence to affection. Jesus told us that we should love God, we should love others, and then after loving God and then loving others, then we love ourselves. And then Ephesians even impacts that more specifically where we should love God. We should, if you're married, you love your spouse. If you have kids, then you love your kids. And then other things follow in cadence after that. There is an order to love as designed by God. And problems surface when you love something that you should love but that you should love that thing not supremely as you have. Maybe you're right in loving some of the things that you've loved, but your love is misplaced. The order has been, has been arranged wrongly. That's when something good becomes God to you, and sin is loving anything more than God. So, so if you love your children more than you love your spouse, you're sinning. If you love your work more than you love your wife, you're sinning, or your husband. If you love your friends or money more than God, you're sinning. It's love misplaced. See, this is all about you and I finding our supreme satisfaction and God alone and nothing else. So let me just lovingly ask you right now, where has your love or where is your love being misplaced? Is there something that you love right now this morning that you should love, but you love it too much? Is there something that you love right now that has replaced your supreme love for God? If you're a Christian, what is keeping you from following Jesus? If you're not a Christian, rather, what is keeping you from following Jesus? What we learn about the story is this. Jesus will confront the idols of your heart. It's out of love did Jesus confront this man and his idolatry. And if you're a Christian, let me just ask you, are you like, are you like those who are, in, who are in Ephesus? You know the church of Ephesus? Who, what did they do? They left their first love. See Jesus this morning as your ultimate supreme source of satisfaction and joy. That's what it means to be Christian. Kind of a little bit different than our naive, lackadaisical, lazy understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ, right? Now, if this, in fact, has raised the level so much, do you feel the impossibility of actually what it means to be saved then? Like when you think about this, if that's what it means to be Christian, then how will anyone ever be Christian? Because that is nearly impossible. Aha. Now you're beginning to understand the story rightly. 
If you see the impossibility of that's what it actually means to be Christian, then you know you're interpreting the story right because that is exactly what the disciples are experiencing. And let me tell you, that's a good thing. Look at verse 23. The disciples looked around and said, or Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, it goes right back to verse 13 through 16, right? Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to, and said to him, then who can be saved? Okay, so th- this example here is given to us of salvation by a rich man, but there's a, listen, there's a greater truth being illustrated here. Because rich people come to meet Jesus. Lydia was absolutely loaded, and Jesus used her to expand his kingdom and to help with church planting in the early church. So it's not so much about the what as it is about the why. This truth here illustrated, listen, applies to anyone. If a rich man is owned by his possessions and has misplaced his love for wealth, how could he ever be saved? If a religious man is owned by moralism and has misplaced his love for God with love for self, which is self-righteousness, how could he ever enter the kingdom of God? If a rebellious sinner doesn't care about God, how could they ever have eternal life? Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, seeing this truth, realize it's not just about a rich man. No one is good except God alone. And it's why they ask this question out of desperation. Hey, who then can be saved? Who can be saved? Jesus looked at them in verse 27 and said, with man it is impossible. With man, it's impossible. But, with, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus can save anyone. Salvation is of the Lord. You cannot save yourself for the life of you. The only thing you contribute in your salvation is sin. It's 100% the gracious act of a sovereign God. It is impossible. While it is impossible for man to save himself, who then can be saved? It's impossible for you and me, but it's not impossible for God. God, if he so wills, can take any camel he wants and put it through the eye of a needle. It's impossible for you and me, but but he can do it. It's his act. 
Only God gets the glory for our salvation. Do you see Jesus? He is emptying us of ourselves so that we would see everything he richly gives to us. Only Jesus can save you from your sin. Only Jesus can save you from your misplaced love. And only Jesus can save you from the eternal condemnation and hell that awaits sinners. Be like a child. Come to Jesus empty-handed. The gospel returns every wayward Christian to their first love. That's the good news. And the gospel does what is impossible for man to do. Gives eternal life. Receive like a child out of joy what Christ has done for you by what you could never do for yourself. Father God, thank you. Oh, thank you for what you've done for us. And this morning, as we're praying right now in this moment, Christian, I want to ask you in this moment of prayer, are you, are you like the rich man? Or are you like a child? Confess your sin. Confess your misplaced love. And realize that your supreme love must be Jesus. Come to the waters and drink. If you have no money, come buy any to taste and see that the Lord is good. You feel it's impossible for you? It's because it is impossible for you but nothing is impossible for God. God, we thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives as a people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please visit shorebreakchurch.com to stay connected or to share your story.